Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom. Regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. In this conversation, recorded in October of 2019, I speak with David Holmgren, co-founder of Permaculture, and I'm joined in the middle by my wife, Connie Barlow, who's the main video editor of this series, and we've titled this conversation Permaculture as Reconnection. There are three previews. Preview one. I've had a debate going back, I suppose, more than a decade with many people in Australia at, at the forefront of climate activism. And when I've raised the possibility of, well, would there be any way to stop the world financial system as a way of um, cutting off greenhouse gas emissions? And having the pushback, of course, that would be catastrophic and affect people very badly. And I said, so this story about the end of the world, possibly the end of you know, humans as a species is just a fairy story to scare the punters, is it? <laughs> so that, that how do we engage with these things that are so large uh, that they become sort of like separated from us? Yes, yes. And I think that is very, very complex. And it also relates a lot to people's personal life journey and how they come to those issues and what their upbringing was and their, and just their personal disposition of a person of, of, you know, whether they see opportunities in dark um, uh, realities or, or whether they get depressed by even, you know, when a sunny day. Preview two. We have to build those foundational levels anyway, because if the civilization is going into fundamental limits, it will tend to break down from the top. Yes, exactly. And if we have to build things anew, you've got to build those up in the shadow of what exists. Yeah. Now, of course, in a hopeful sense, that leads then eventually to reform of existing systems before they collapse. But if you try and reform those over the top as a starting point, then I think that's something which is denying how systems work and change. So permaculture's always been, uh, you know, driven from that household, personal level. How do we get those systems working? Preview three. The simple things of connecting to nature and the cycle of the seasons uh, is always a grounding thing when dealing with the awareness of the, the, the scales of the, the problem. And, you know, the appreciation that come from those even in that, like the way here we appreciate it when it rains and, <laughs> and fills dams and tanks and, uh, and new life in the, 
in the soil. And even those simple things that we've found that people very disconnected and alienated, putting seeds in the ground and see plants grow, it, it's, it, it's silly in a way that something so simple could actually uh, be positive or inspire people when they're very ordinary things. But I think that is uh, the thing that I would say is the important thing to be reconnected to. The conversation begins. Well, David, thank you for taking time to come out of your garden so that you could have a conversation with me. Uh, and with oh, all, all of us who are part of this uh, sort of post-Doom conversation series. So I have been aware of your work for many years. Uh, I first encountered permaculture in the early 1990s. I did permaculture training uh, in 1995 with Chuck Marsh and Peter Bain. And so I, I've been a huge fan of, of your work and uh, then was just reacquainted with your current thinking on some of the topics of this conversation series in the, the, the thing you did, the apology uh, to the grandchildren. And, uh, but there are gonna be people who will either be watching this or listening to this who are not yet familiar with you. And so if you could just take a few minutes before we get into the kind of questions that I emailed uh, and just share with folks uh, sort of who you are in the world, what you're particularly passionate or committed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm best known as the co-originator of the permaculture concept with Bill Molson, which was published as Permaculture One in back in 1978, when I was 23 years of age, and uh, uh, Bill was in his late 40s. Uh, we had, uh, he was uh, a mentor of mine at a time, uh, quite independently of the course I was studying, which was environmental design. And I suppose it was a radical experiment in tertiary education, maybe characteristic of the 70s, and one of the things that came out of that in the context of Tasmania, which is one of the places that the modern environmental movement, first Green Party in the world, emerged from, you know, permaculture sort of came out of that crucible in a sense. Yep. Uh, it was, yes, me and Bill Mollison, but it was also the, the context, the social context and, uh, and the time. I suppose... Since that time, I certainly in the first decade stood back and watched permaculture become a global movement while I spent most of my time working as a consultant, helping people establish permaculture uh, properties, but also engaging in my own, if you like, voluntary frugality, permaculture, minimalist economic approach to things, focusing on the household, the non-monetary economy as much as the monetary economy. And in the 90s, I was progressively drawn back into permaculture teaching through permaculture design courses. And I suppose my most substantial contribution in that field became clear in 2002 when we published Permaculture principles and pathways beyond sustainability that a lot of people would put as, you know, the great 
text with Mollison's designer's manual, which was written a decade after Permaculture One yes. in 1988. So my work has involved me uh, in more recent decades being further afield than Australia, but most of my time and work has been in Australia and for the last 35 years living here in central Victoria on our property Meliodora, which is a permaculture case study. I suppose more recently my work on future scenarios, looking at the peak oil climate change and those larger over the horizon issues that have always informed permaculture had taken me a bit away from the, the practicals and the principles of permaculture into what's the context. Yes. And then again, I've come back in my work to the more grounded work with the new book, Retro Suburbia, uh, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. So, uh, you know, there's, there's themes that run through my work of sort of big picture theoretical context and practical grounded. Well, actually, say a little bit about your newest book, because uh, I know you've been on a book tour as well. Say something about this latest one. Yeah, well, Retro Suburbia is building on a lineage of um, work over the last 10 years in response partly to the limits to growth crisis of climate change and, and peak oil and all the other uh, assorted issues that means we will be facing, uh, in my view, uh, what I've called the energy descent future of a world of less, basically, with the building stock, with the inherited ways of living and behaviours that people have grown up with, and with their yeah, skill sets, and having to adapt to that radically different world, rather than designing ourselves a new, uh, if you like, uh, blank slate uh, future. So in that sense, that aspect of permaculture of retrofitting what we already have yes, both exactly. in the built sense and the biological sense but also the behavioral so some people would say retro suburbia is three books the built uh, the um, biological and the behavioral and it's a very big book it's um, how you know, many six, pages 600 pages oh, and yeah. it's beautifully illustrated and it's a, a lot of people would say it's a lot more easy reading than uh, my book of theory, Permaculture uh, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. Uh, and it's deliberately intended that as an inspiring manual for people who are more or less in situ, uh, primarily in suburbia, and in a focused sense, we're able to get down to sort of detailed patterns by focusing it in geographically in our home territory in yes. southeastern Australia. So we've also thumbed the nose at the, you know, the globalist convention that you must write the book for the largest audience, you know, so uh, apologies to North American readers, <laughs> but, you know, the sun's in, <laughs> comes from uh, the north, not the south, and uh, we even use Australian colloquialisms that I, I feel in a way in the permaculture world, um, uh, Bill Mollison uh, pioneered for us of calling chickens chooks. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, there's a very deliberate thing there of saying the future is local 
we need to relocalise and it's celebrating that this book is, is written for our territory, but clearly people in these fields will, you know, in other places will take and adapt and say, oh yeah, that needs to be tweaked, uh, you know, because we're in Phoenix, Arizona, not Melbourne, or, you know, we're in upstate Maine, <laughs> you know, and yes, that doesn't apply here, but this other pattern does. For, for, for the short time that Phoenix, Arizona still has water. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things, Dave, that I so love about your work is that it brings together the big picture, the practical, the earthy, um, with an understanding of um, the rhythms of the living world and the patterns of the living world and how to integrate with them and work with them. And this particular series I've titled Post-Doom, um, Regenerative Conversations, Exploring Overshoot, Grief, Gratitude, and Grounding. And I just wanted to ask at the start, um, what's your sense of, of how do you language our times and, and what's unfolding? I mean, uh, William Catton spoke about, you know, the collapse of Homo Colossus. Um, the sixth great extinction, obviously. John Michael Greer speaks about the catabolic collapse. What language have you used and do you find yourself using? And do you find any resonance with the language of post-doom? Yeah, well, I suppose permaculture has always been informed by a fairly dark view of the state of the world. But uh, both Mollison and myself were always focused on what is the, uh, the positive thing that can be done while being aware yes. of that. Maybe it's also a bit, uh, I can't remember the Spanish revolutionary anti-fascist, I can't remember his name, who said, the situation is hopeless, we must continue. <laughs> exactly. uh, uh, and I, I suppose that history combined with the fact that I grew up in a, a family of political radicals where I was taught not to necessarily believe what I read in the newspapers and to accept authority that you know I've never had that loss of that faith you know the faith in the system the faith in the arrow of progress you know always had in a sense what broadly even though that word is a bit contaminated a postmodern view of, well, there's all different ways of looking at things and some things that are seen as terrible if one society might not be, you know, from another perspective or the deep time perspective, uh, deep history uh, of seeing the ups and downs cycles and also the celebration really of the benefits of industrial society in its complete unsustainability and all the stupid outcomes that that we have more power than the ancient kings you know yeah. courtesy of fossil fuels so yeah, that exactly. sense of why aren't we like um at least aware of of all these uh benefits um and I suppose that recognising that they are completely, you know, unsustainable, there's, that's provided, I suppose, a bit of insulation against what a lot of people yeah. are talking about of the, the grief of, of recognising that a whole lot of things are not going to be a better version of the present in, in the future. I, 
uh, coined the term independently of John Michael Greer, who of course has been a much greater and uh, perhaps a more eloquent articulator of the concept of energy descent. I used the word descent to be the clearest indication of, of processes of contraction and reduction uh, that I could use in English that was relatively neutral. And, and I made the distinction uh, that I thought the use of collapse um, was uh, overdone. And with all respect to the, you know, incredible work of uh, uh, people like Joseph Tatner and others, that I don't see the future that we're facing is most likely to be a collapse though obviously some of the climate evidence is suggesting that that is a real possibility. Uh, you know, and I, I sort of see the, the decline of the Roman Empire as our best sort of documented in history sort of pathway of an energy descent pathway. And, you know, there were some aspects of that which, you know, life got better for people after the collapse of, of Rome because they didn't have to pay the onerous taxes to keep the empire going, you know, so that it wasn't all just like terrible. But also, of course, the key thing is that that is a, a process which goes over quite a long time. So a stepwise series of crises more likely than catastrophic collapse. But that being said, you know, the I've also found this until recently being quite a disconnect in in people speaking about these things because I've had a debate going back I suppose more than a decade with many people in Australia at, at the forefront of um, uh, climate activism and when I've raised the possibility of well, would there be any way to stop the world financial system as a way of um, cutting off greenhouse gas emissions? And having the pushback, of course, that would be catastrophic and affect people very badly. And I said, so this story about the end of the world, possibly the end of you know, humans as a species, is just a fairy story to scare the punters, is it? <laughs> so that, that how do we engage with these things that are so large uh, that they become sort of like separated from us. Yes, yes. And I think that is very, very complex. And it also relates a lot to people's personal life journey and how they come to those issues and what their upbringing was and their, and just their personal disposition of a person of, of you know, whether they see opportunities in dark, um, uh, realities or, or when they get depressed by even, you know, when a sunny day. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it is, it has been interesting. I've had about 35 of these calls so far in the series. And I think you're absolutely right. There's people's personality or their character tendencies uh, tend to be pretty consistent through time. And, uh, you know, if they were an optimist earlier in life, chances are they'll sort of look at things a little more optimistically and, you know, yeah. you mentioned John Michael Greer's book. I, I've read, a, I think, 14 of his books. And, of course, The Long Descent, I think, is one of, 
one of the more important ones. And I do want to mention other, something else I just discovered just a few months ago. Luke Kemp wrote a thing for the BBC Civilization series. It was featured on BBC. And the title of it uh, was, Are We on the Road to Civilizational Collapse? And he has a chart showing 88 civilizations between 4,000 BCE and 1,000 of the Common Era. So that 5,000-year period, he doesn't look back before 4,000 BCE, and he doesn't look at the last 1,000 years. But just that 5,000-year period, he shows 88 civilizations, and not only how long they lasted, but what they died of, basically, and overshoot was mm. a lot of them. So I recommend that as a resource. I'll send you the link to these uh, after mm. our conversation. Yeah, well, one way to look at human culture is there's long periods of uh, stable uh, agrarian, even indigenous cultures connected to land, using resources in, in a sustainable way. And then there's this sort of flip into cashing in <laughs> the, the accumulated uh, biophysical wealth. or uh, And there's this firestorm that produces all of this explosion that we uh, associate with complex civilization um, that somehow trashes things but it also sort of recycles stuff and then it has to go back to another long phase of accumulation. Of course the problem with that model for our civilization is that we've done it with a fossil fuel pulse which is hundreds yeah. of millions of years worth of accumulation. One of the great uh, influences on the emergence of organics and certainly permaculture as well was F.H. King's work going to China to, mm, this appears to be a civilization which has had its ups and downs, but has sort of more or less continued for 4,000 years. How did they do that? And of course, he it was mostly looking at soil and regenerative cyclical processes, and especially, of course, the recycling of human waste. Yes, exactly. Uh, often tends to be a problem that urban systems, you know, there's this separation of the cycle, um, the nutrient cycle, uh, and, um, you know, the Chinese, of course, developed cultural and practical systems to actually deal with that. The practical obsession in, in permaculture with all sorts of particular practical solutions. You know, the compost toilet is one of those and a bunch of permies getting together, you know, the, the discussion of shit at the dinner table <laughs> often seems to come up. And, and of course, yeah, this is grounded in yeah, the very serious understandings that we need to connect those things back in cycles and, and perhaps centralised water-based sewerage is one of the type one errors that our civilization made. Yeah, well, my one of the people who influenced me pretty largely uh, on this topic, Teddy Goldsmith, Edward Goldsmith, uh, and his book, The Way. His um, article in an early version of The Ecologist magazine, which of course he founded, um, an article written in 1972 that I read in 1973, um, an ecological interpretation of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire exactly big influence on my work but finally I met Teddy Goldsmith only in 2003 in New Zealand at um, an event we were both part of and I was on a panel with him and 
Elizabeth Satoris. Oh, really? I know Elizabeth quite well. And it was uh, it was hilarious because I got the uh, position of being the reasonable person in the middle. <laughs> but Elizabeth, uh, very positive um, evolutionary um, life force view and. Uh, um, I mean, I think her work is uh, uh, amazing. And um, Teddy, who had uh, a very, very dark uh, view. And, um, uh, and yeah, so it was good. I could, rather than being the radical extreme, I could play the reasonable middle person um, between these two uh, great figures. And anyway, this woman uh, about my age, much younger than Teddy, came up to me afterwards and she said, I want to meet this man. She came up and shook my hand. And she said, that was fantastic what you said. And I, I was a little taken back. And she said, if, it, if everyone listened to Teddy, they just slit their wrists. <laughs> and I said, who is this woman? It was his wife. <laughs> oh, that's too cute. Thank you for sharing that story. That's uh, I thought it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it might be relevant to this view of yes uh, this post doom series right exactly well david hello good to meet you i'm, I'm sort of curious uh, the apology from baby boomers to the handicapped generations i encountered it reposted on resilience i get a lot of things from resilience. Uh, yeah. and i know you wrote it around solstice 2018 but it was just really reposted in march of this year and what stunned me were a couple things. One, I'm an American, you're an Australian. And I couldn't believe everything in there sounded like my life, my childhood. Now I'm just three years older than you, but I did not know Australia and Americans were that similar. Um, and, and, and now I understand that. Yeah, well, I suppose in some ways, you know, there's the joke of us being, you know, another state of the United States more than Canada, even though Canada is the natural sort of other country in the world to compare in terms of similar uh, trajectory. What, what, what really struck me about the apology is I've been so focused on our climate responsibility, um, what's going on with the economy. Uh, William Catton's book, Overshoot, gave me this wonderful understanding of me growing up, and you, and him over here, in the age of exuberance. Yep. And so all these shifts that you list that were different from your parents, from my parents, Michael's parents were, were younger, but yours and mine very much so, in terms of not being 100% embedded in that monetary economy, which of yeah. course is your whole permaculture is getting back to there's a lot of self-sufficiency going on. And mm. I know I was given that opportunity to learn how to do those skills, but they've passed the by. So everything you've talked about there beyond just the ecological meltdown, the economic meltdown, but the social meltdown, the devaluing of the household economy, uh, kids having to be chauffeured everywhere, not knowing how to preserve food anymore. All of these things, it just hit me like, I'm not just complicit in the carbon budget I put out. <laughs> I'm complicit in all kinds of social shift 
that in the age of exuberance was fine because we had the excesses, but these mm. social shifts do not do the next generations any good in a time of contraction. And I so appreciated you taking the full thing and basically saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry as a boomer to the handicapped generations because we've handicapped you not having the skills, not having the experience from elders that we got, and we're sorry. And so I thank you for that. And yeah, we were both both <laughs> peers. Yes. The essay, of course, had had two directions. Obviously, it was you know attempting that direct apology to younger people, and also that um, sort of like wake up call uh, to them, though. Uh, in the sense, the apology is to the pe younger people who already recognise part of the nature of that problem. Um, and then, of course, the other direction for which I've had quite a bit of feedback is our own generation of, of, of sort of laying that out. And, of course, some people have said, um, uh, you know, oh, you don't need to apologise for that. You've made a great effort to do otherwise. But it's a little bit of that awareness that puts you in a position to uh, see that and also experience the way, you know, that to varying extents, all of us had to adapt to that dominant reality that we experienced as coming from the society as a whole, or maybe attributing it to our parents. And I, I tried to sort of, acknowledges in the essay that it wasn't like a hundred percent creation of uh, the baby boom generation, but we were really just the unwitting recipients of that. But, uh, you know, we're also, you know, complicit. You less so because so early on after limits to growth, you started working from that perspective and you stayed there. I mean, limits... Well, yeah, yeah and, and that, for me, made the essay more powerful than it might have been had it been written by somebody else. It's like there are few members of the baby boom generation that could possibly get off with not being apologetic. <laughs> and, and frankly, you as co-originator of permaculture would be one. And so the fact that you could write such a heartful, um, prophetic um but humble peace speaking really for a generation you spoke for my heart even though these were your words and part of it is because of what you've been committed to for decades so at any rate i i share connie's enthusiasm and gratitude to you for that for that particular piece and anybody watching this or listening to this if you've not read david's uh piece called the apology um, please look it up, Google it. It's, it's available several places. Connie's recorded the audio of it. It's up on RIP, that's rest in peace, RIP Homo Colossus on SoundCloud. Yeah, you can find yeah. it there. You can also find it to the, in the caption to this video. I'll make sure it gets in there. Okay. But, but again, the, the thing that I'd, I'd, I'd really like to say about this is that there's a sense of freeing that comes with being able to say, yes, I'm complicit. I didn't understand what I was doing. I was, you know, mm. didn't know I was being evil, <laughs> but I'm complicit. <laughs> I'm guilty. 
and and I'll even accept shame in there, but it, there's a freeing sense to be able to, you know, mm. to do to, to say that. And I've even used it in a church service where I've just you know read out places to this. I, you know, it's there's something freeing, and I thank you for writing something that feels exactly like I wrote it myself. So thank you. I did read. Uh, a more limited version of it in our recent tour we were doing an event in newcastle and with school kids um three young activists there who gave a presentation at this event and it was organized for me to read um a limited version of the apology about half as long as the the written one and it was the first time i had actually spoken uh, oh, how how was it received by the uh, adults there, and how and what was the age group of the kids, and how was it received? Yeah, yeah well, they were teenage uh, climate activists, and and they felt uh, really empowered by it. They felt really positive, but there were people of our generation who who uh, it hit really hard for them, and there were people who were sort of you know active in positive solutions but it, it it sort of yeah brought out a lot of grief and yes that's they somewhat similar to you know your reaction uh to it whereas i was a bit worried about like what the teenagers what their reaction but that, that was like yeah you know like that was sort of like um energy in there and not not so much extreme anger or, or, or anything, but yeah, no, like, you know. Yes, like, no, no finger pointing, but instead like, yes, it's being said. Well, part of that yeah. is my experience is that there's something about human nature. Actually, the next question I wanted to ask you is along the lines of human nature, but before we even get there, there's something about human nature in, for most people that responds in a positive way to somebody taking full responsibility, even if it wasn't their full responsibility, but nonetheless taking full responsibility and genuinely from the heart apologizing and say, I was responsible and, mm. uh, and I was complicit or whatever. There's something so freeing because whatever part of the consciousness of that person that they're being spoken to that was full of rage or judgment or criticism or bickering or whatever that kind of gets evaporated and then they can invest their energy in where they can invest and perhaps make a difference because part of that isn't going into judging you asshole baby boomers <laughs> look at what yeah. you left us with well you yeah. know and and let me add to that uh very recently i did the video edit of the good grief network to millennial uh, young women, Laura Schmidt and Amy Lewis Rowe, and they have a 10 step for coming through grief and uh, climate grief, mainly climate grief, but all this whole thing coming through. And even for the millennials, step two is acknowledging our own complicity in mm. this predicament because they too are driving cars, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's something there of early on making that acknowledgement, and then it opens up this whole realm of where we can go to next. And I feel that way with your apology. So thank you. And I'll leave the rest <laughs> to Michael here. Thank you, David. Thank you.
frankly, I'd, I have no need uh, uh, to go through the kinds of questions that I've been asking m most of the other guests, uh, unless there's some that jump out at you that I sent you the email. But part of that is because for me, permaculture is the, I mean, if there, if there were one discipline, one body of work, one body of practice that most embodies, typifies, exemplifies post-doom, <laughs> it would be permaculture. Uh, and so anybody watching or listening to this that may not be familiar with what permaculture means, we've been using yeah. this term, yeah. but uh, could you just give a, just a short little uh, sort of essence of, of what permaculture is about? Yeah, so permaculture for a lot of people, because of its rapid popularization and spread through practical down-to-earth grassroots things has been associated with you know, a cool form of organic gardening or, uh, you know, uh, self-reliant living. And it is those things, but it's really a design system for both sustainable living and sustainable land use. So it's concerned with the both uh, the intimate ways of our behaviours and how, how we live and the larger issues of how we, through a working relationship with nature, provide for our basic needs. And of course, even in saying that, that's acknowledging that we're moving into a post-fossil fuel world where we've been providing for our needs with non-land-based, non-nature-based uh, resources where those have been sort of an adjunct <laughs> that we still sort of need to turn fossil fuel into food. <laughs> but that in the future, how we, this working relationship with nature, we need to take a design approach to that. And so what that means is that, yes, it builds a lot of things that people might say are just common sense from a more traditional, rural, self-reliant, and especially indigenous cultural point of view. Uh, and there have been some learnings that have come through the general environment movement about those sources of wisdom, but it, it reaches back and explores those patterns a lot more at the same time as saying the world is now changed and there are some things that our civilization has developed of ways of thinking, uh, especially the science of ecology uh, and systems thinking and design as a sort of a new literacy. Yeah. Because we are moving into this world so fast that the more slow iterative processes of organic evolution that characterize previous sustainable cultures, we don't actually have the time for that. Right. And luckily, one of the things that has come out of the modern world is this gradually increasing literacy about how you uh, take concepts, use prior models, and design something that previously didn't exist. And when we started talking about design in the context of agriculture, of permanent agriculture, sustainable agriculture, a lot of people said, what's design got to do with farming? You know, yes, farming is about agronomy and husbandry of livestock, but design, are you talking about, you know, some nice trees down the driveway of the farm, <laughs> you know? Uh, but of course, now there's a much broader understanding, not just because of permaculture, in this country through the land care movement, whole farm planning, the idea that how 
a farm is laid out is incredibly important to the sustainability of the agronomic and husbandry systems that work within that uh, design. So uh, it's really, yes, a design system, but the applications tend to start with the individual, the household, um, small enterprise, rather than starting at the top right. of society and say, how do we redesign the whole system right. from the top? No, we need the working models of how to do that at a smaller scale because in a sense, we've got to walk before we run because these, these things are, are effectively new. And that means we have to build those foundational levels anyway, because if the civilization is going into fundamental limits, it will tend to break down from the top. Yes, exactly. And if we have to build things anew, you've got to build those up in the shadow of what exists. Yeah. Now, of course, in a hopeful sense, that leads then eventually to reform of existing systems before they collapse. But if you try and reform those over the top as a starting point, then I think that's um, yep. uh, something which is denying how systems work and change. So permaculture's always been, uh, you know, driven from that household personal level how do we get those systems working even though we recognize that in a whole society there's lots of different things that need to be done at different levels and you know the chinese tried backyard steel smelting in the great leap forward in the 1950s you know it wasn't a great <laughs> success but there's a lot of things that yeah. we need to rekindle yeah. at that uh level so that leads to it being seen as a very sort of homely sort of simple thing which is easily adopted and not necessarily threatening that we don't need to reinvent the whole world to say let's go out and grow some food in the backyard yeah. uh you know but also that people within permaculture have often used that descriptor that permaculture is revolution disguised as gardening. Amen. Well, that's exactly it. And, and it, it really builds on the Taoist and Confucianist understanding of you start with the person, the home, the family, you build up. Mm. Um, and I, uh, it's interesting, before you gave that little quote, that's my sense all along is that permaculture and permaculture design specifically is revolutionary because it's all about moving out of anthropocentrism into life-centeredness again at small scale and then modeling the wisdom that has emerged over millions of years and integrating with that so that the entire system is holistically life-giving it's ecological in the best holistic sense i mean i'm always trying to translate stuff permaculture related stuff, sustainability related stuff, uh, science related stuff in a religious language because I speak to largely religious audiences. Mm. So I speak of ecology as the heart of theology. And yeah. by that, I mean that every sustainable culture for which we have evidence, and Teddy Goldsmith did more to further this understanding than anybody else I know, all, all cultures that lived in place without destroying the place had what I call an eco-theo 
worldview. That is their ecos was divine, a greater thou, and their understanding of Theo, however that was mythologized, was was green, incarnate, revealed, expressed, embodied, whatever in the in the living world. And so yep. that eco-theo understanding, permaculture design is the without any theology, without any philosophy, it's the sort of integration of the the thinking and behavior of not just thinking like a mountain, like John Seed would talk about, but mm. thinking like a forest, thinking like a garden, thinking like a landscape. So, yes, and I, I think my partner Sue Dennett would say the importance of the household is that also is these things uh, aren't necessarily rebuilt in one generation, just changing its thinking as adults. So uh, the recreation of the connectedness to nature uh, at home, where a child is crawling in the garden, you know, putting food in its mouth, all of those things of raising children in that environment is the building block, uh, far more than just, oh, we'll come up with a new idea as already formed uh, adults and sort of project that into the uh, the future. The, so grounding it in that raising of, uh, of children brings it back to that sort of household uh, economy and the, the basic issues, uh, the basic relationships. Yes, yes, exactly. So those of you doing that are on the cutting edge, you being foremost among them, um, of the design work living system design uh, are, the, in my estimation, the saints of future generations, should any humans survive this bottleneck? <laughs> well, it's partly those larger issues that have brought me back to the, the retrofitting paradigm of that, you know, you've got to start where you are, you've got to accept all the baggage, all the history, and that that has come to me also from many years of uh, as a consultant advising people in permaculture site design, especially in rural sites that people would see as more or less a blank slate. And of course, a lot of my job was to explain the soil, the hydrology, the land history, the context in which you are going to do something so that you are not imposing something on the land that won't actually work, that, that references those past things. And, and so in that sense, there isn't any blank slate exactly. design in any case. There's always this history, this past that should be reflected, acknowledged, you know, Hard. both the good and the bad. Yeah. yeah, and so in that sense, sort of industrial consumer society has created not just all this infrastructure and landscapes, much of which we will actually have to deal with in a salvage sense yes. uh, through various processes. But some of those realizations sort of have led to changes in my strategic thinking too. From the early days of permaculture and limits to growth, we thought, oh, well, you know, when these systems um, fail, things like stainless steel and polypipe and all these sort of good things that industrial society has created, 
will be scarce and valuable. Uh, and as we moved on into the sort of supercharged, uh, use it, throw it away world, of course, our experience has been uh, in the absence of that collapse, that this abundance of these things has been come even more extreme. So the most universal characteristic I would see in permaculture projects around the world, more than ecological um, agriculture or gardening or even ecological building is creative reuse. Yes, exactly. And, and you say, okay, well, yeah, but that's just, that's what we thought was the case while the supercharged affluence is going. But what about when it ends? Yeah. And what I've come to is there will be so much stuff left over from the discretionary economy when all the dog shampoo services and the gymnasia and the coffee shops are no longer needed because even in more modest uh, energy descent futures, you know, we've moved back to what I call a, a sort of a beer, spuds and petrol, you know, gasoline uh, economy, you know, the basics, then what are we going to do with all of these buildings all of this stuff that has been created. So I have a sense that, in fact, we'll be swimming in all this, some of it just garbage, but a lot of it incredibly useful things that we'll inherit that are not necessarily sustainable in some perpetual sense, but there's this incredibly opportunity to reuse those things. And some of those things will be so persistent that like some uh, toxins, on a beneficial side, they'll be persistent. So people thousands of years into the future, possibly even longer, might still be making knives out of stainless steel created in the 20th century. Yeah. You know, so that in that sense, there's, there's physical things even, even though most physical things decay, there's this huge sort of, wave of stuff we'll have to work out how to creatively reuse and then of course we can start thinking about our own culture in that way too that what are all the skills that are no longer useful or applicable in the way they were but do they have some salvage use yeah i, I remember first reading about uh this uh Richard Heinberg, I actually had a conversation with him, a post-doom conversation earlier today. And he, in 2011, I was reading his book, or maybe 2012, The End of Growth. And in that book, he was highly recommending a book by John Michael Greer called um, The Ecotechnic Society. Yep. And, uh, and so I bought the book. I had never heard of John Michael Greer and I bought the book and that was the first, my first introduction to Greer. And that's where he also articulates in a beautifully compelling way using the whole model of succession. And you know, that you've got industrialism and then, and then sort of salvage industrialism and you've got a several step process. Now, of course, this assumes that abrupt climate change doesn't wig out so severely that, you know, we all boil like mm -hmm. lobsters or starve to death in the next yeah. 20 years. But again, it's applying the ecological principles to our way of living at multiple scales. Mm. I think for me that that shift that the the scale of resource freeing up, um, you know, and, and especially in the sense of unused buildings, which has been a, a big theme in my retro suburbia work. So I've been sort of 
saying into the attempting to get traction in the debate in this country about the housing crisis and the unaffordability of housing and you know we've got one of the most rapidly growing populations of any OECD country I'm claiming we don't actually need to build any more buildings. Yes, exactly. <laughs> more growing population because what we need to do is to learn to share our houses to make uh, more effective, resilient households and, you know, get all the speculative built houses that are actually not occupied. We apparently have 61,000 completely unoccupied uh, uh, houses and apartments in, in Melbourne, which is apparently five for every homeless person in the city. Uh, and then of course, there's all those other buildings, like I said, the gymnasia and the dog shampoo service, you know, that can all be housing. And then there's, of course, container architecture. You know, when world trade falls to half, you know, what are we gonna do with all the shipping containers? Well, we actually do have a, a sort of an architecture of shipping containers that's been evolving over the last few years. And they're already, cheaper than the cost of the steel uh, in them to, to buy. Um, so, you know, in, in that sense, you know, there's that very positive view that the exuberances and abundances of industrial civilization are a lot of fat in the system for some sort of sensible reorganization. Yeah. And of course that doesn't necessarily help a farmer on the, the Ganges Delta in Bangladesh right. deal with rising sea level and the failure of remittances from his family overseas and can they grow any more food on the land right. they're on. Um, so there are, you know, hard limits, but it's like the example I give of the Soweto taxi with 15 people in it, it's hard to say put 30 people in the Soweto taxi. But, you know, in America and Australia, you know, each car could quadruple its um, efficiency by having four people in the car rather than, than one. So that um, portraying that positive possibilities that are actually in people's hands rather than please governments and corporations work your magic with complex technology and give us a completely safe and renewable energy systems, you know, and do it tomorrow. But a lot of the solutions are actually in our own hands yeah. if we yeah. choose to, uh, to do them. And I, I think that is empowering and it's exactly the same processes that actually have people deal with productively deal with crisis and yes. grief about lost possibilities anyway exactly but, uh, and and we see that people are doing that but the more empowered and positive examples there are um, of for example um, extended family reunion to deal with hard times positive models of how to do that are going to help a lot more than people being forced into doing those things and having to deal with the, the downsides. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm going to have to, I, I love John Michael Greer's Retrotopia. I loved his book, The Retro Future. I'm going to have to get Retro Suburbia, no question. 
<laughs> yes, there's definitely some uh, synergies there. And you might like to see a, a short story I wrote called History from the Future. It's downloadable from the uh, Retro Suburbia website. And it's about uh, our region in central Victoria looking back from 2086. I think it's a relatively positive story, but uh, when I presented this at a conference, people were very challenged. Uh, oh, well, Dave, this is Dave, this has been absolutely fabulous. Anything that you'd like to say just to bring this com to completion? The simple things of connecting to nature and the cycle of the seasons uh, is always a grounding thing when dealing with the awareness of the, the, the scales of the, the problem. And, you know, the appreciation that come from those even in that, like the way here we appreciate it when it rains and, <laughs> and fills dams and tanks and, uh, and new life in the, in the soil. And even those simple things that we've found that people very disconnected and alienated, putting seeds in the ground and see plants grow, it, it's, it's, it's silly in a way that something so simple could actually uh, be positive or inspire people when they're very ordinary things. But uh, I think that is uh, the thing that I would say is the important thing to be reconnected to. Yes, exactly. Well, and one of the things that inspired a lot of audiences that I spoke for many years and sold Bill Mollison's Global Gardener video is that a lot of people weren't aware that permaculture can be done in arid regions, in the tropics, uh, you know, uh, in cooler climates and in urban areas. Uh, there really is. Uh, uh, yeah, the techniques and the strategies shift with context and place, but the, the underlying ethics of care of the earth, care of people and fair share and design principles are universal, but everywhere what you do is different. Yeah, yeah. This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos of post-Doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.